I had opportunity to listen to a reading of uh, the great preacher Spurgeon's sermon on our passage today. We're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. It was a rich sermon. But one thing stood out to me that really grieved me. Spurgeon's illustration of a great work of the Spirit during his day was what was happening in America at his time. There was a great awakening happening in America during Spurgeon's day at that time. And Spurgeon said the Spirit's work in America was undeniable. Just like in the passage in Acts chapter 10 verses 44 to 48. Spurgeon explained that the evidence of a Spirit-led revival was the hunger for God by the people of America. He gave example of 3,000 men that were meeting in Philadelphia every day at noon in America just to pray. We need people like this today, don't we? I would venture to say we can't find 3,000 men in our whole country that get together to pray ever, much less in the city of Philadelphia. Our country has come a long ways, hasn't it? Down into the pit. Oh, beloved, this is what we need, though, in America. We need a revival. We need people broken over their sin and pursuing with great passion the Lord God. We ultimately don't need a change in political parties. We need the Spirit to descend upon our country. Our primary problem is not politics. It's a problem of who's controlling our hearts. We are people led by our fleshly desires. Oh, how far our country has fallen from those days of the Great Awakening. We have gone from people broken over iniquity and turning to God to prideful people calling sin good and despising God. We need a Spirit-led revival, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit to fall upon us. We need the great worship leader to change hearts and lives. We need the Spirit to descend upon us. Today we're going to see the Spirit fall upon a group of people. Today we're going to see that the great hope that that brings... As the people realize the glory of the gospel, these Gentile believers, and the Spirit bursts forth on the scene. Last week we saw the glory of the gospel was revealed to these Gentiles. And again, a Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. The Gentile before Christ came were described in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 as separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, who were formerly far off. That's what Gentiles were. And by the way, most of us in the room, I would imagine, have those as our descendants. We are Gentiles. You understand that that's us, apart from Christ and apart from the gospel coming and the new covenant being opened up to the Gentiles. 
This Acts chapter 10 is huge. Because if Acts chapter 10 didn't happen, we would still be separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, and having no hope without God. That's who we'd be. Yet with the victory of Jesus over sin and death, hope was born. And the hope spread from the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And today's passage is called the Gentiles Pentecost. As we saw back in Acts chapter 2, many would call this, or commentaries have called this, the Gentile Pentecost, when the Spirit falls on a great group of Gentiles, our distant relatives. So again today we see our hope is found in the arrival of the Spirit and His saving influence. We need this awakening again, don't we? We need a fresh understanding of the glory of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And no, that does not mean I'm calling on this great, we want new miracles to come. I just want the Spirit to come and descend upon us so that we will repent of our sin and trust in Him. That's what we need, ladies and gentlemen. Just to briefly review in our section from chapter 10, verses 1 all the way through eleven eighteen, we've seen the Gentile seeks the God in verses 1 to 23, and then the gospel saves the Gentiles is the section we're in in number 2. And then finally we see the grace shocks the gifted. We'll talk about that next week. But our focus today is on the gospel saves the Gentiles. Today we're going to see the results of the gospel upon this crowd of Gentiles. Again, we talked last week about what the gospel is. And we see that in as Mark read again today from verses 34 down through 43. We see what the gospel is. The gospel is... The impartiality of the gospel, that is, is that it's for every tribe, nation, and tongue, and people. All who turn to Christ and embrace Him, that gospel is for you, the good news of Christ Jesus. We also saw that it brings peace with God. Oh, the glorious truth, right? The reality that we can be at peace with a God that we sinned against, one that we deserve judgment but we can have peace with Him. Why? All because the person and work of Jesus Christ that's found in the gospel. Who He is and what He's done. Oh, what a glorious Savior we have, right? He came to this world because He saw us that we could not obey. None of us could obey. And so He came to the world and obeyed the Father perfectly, doing what we couldn't do. He was righteous when we are unrighteous. He was perfect. And in the process, he fulfilled all that the law required. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly, while none of us do. All of us break them. And yet, in his perfection, he then died in our place. The just for the unjust. He died in our place so that we could have our sins paid for, and so that we could have... His righteousness credited to our account. That is glorious gospel, isn't it? It's good news. And he didn't stay in a grave. He rose from the dead. And he's alive. He's alive and he's ruling and he's reigning. 
despite the disaster of the world and the wickedness of the world, He is ruling and reigning from heaven. And all sin has been paid for His children if we trust in Him. And the fact is, one day He's coming back. One day He's going to set this place right. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait. I'm ready for that day. The reality is, is if we understand this gospel, then we are then commissioned to go and proclaim this gospel. We tell others about the gospel, don't we? We share it everywhere we go. We share it to believers and we share it to unbelievers. We talk about Christ now. We talk about Christ at lunch. We talk about Christ at break time. We talk about Christ at dinner time. We talk about Christ all the time, don't we? Because he's our life, right? We've been bought with a price and we now live for him, not ourselves. He's everything to us, isn't he, believer? This gospel controls us, doesn't it? We live for him. And yet in that gospel there is an invitation. An invitation to believe to trust in Him, to turn from your sin. And if you turn from your sin, just like Cornelius turned from his sin, your sin can be forgiven. All of your sin can be forgiven. All the believers in the room say, I know this sweet sound, don't we? We know this news, don't we? It's not old news to us, is it? It's good news, isn't it? All sin's forgiven. And all Christians say, Hallelujah. All because of Christ. And for you out there that don't know Christ yet, I want to call you today. I want to plead with you today. Trust in Christ. Turn your life over to Him. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and embrace Christ because He is good and your sin can be forgiven. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our Lord, our, our, our submission to His Lordship. So again, today we're going to see the results of the gospel upon the crowd of Gentiles. What happens when this gospel really impacts people's lives? You'll see it. There's four features of this found in our passage today. Four features of the new covenant revealed in this passage. This new covenant is a relationship that's established between God and man. This new covenant is a new relationship between God and man where we can enjoy and we can delight and we can be satisfied with God. Why? Because God makes us right with Him and He changes our lives and our hearts. And in the process of changing our hearts, He also indwells His people. This is glorious truth. The God of the universe, the one that made it all, takes up his abode in his people. That's what we see in this as a result of the gospel. You understand, folks? This is good news. Let me ask you a question. If God can create the world in six days, and he did, do you think he'll make a difference in a person's life if he's indwelling them? Yes. Can you continue to walk in unrepentant sin? No. You know why? You have the creator of the universe, the holy God, indwelling your lives. 
And if not, if you continue in unrepentant sin, then it shows that you aren't indwelled by that holy God. Oh, beloved, this new covenant is real. This new relationship is objective. You see truth come out of it. You see changed lives. That's what happens with Cornelius. This is what we see in our passage in chapter 4 or in chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. So let's look at our passage. There are four features of this covenant, new covenant, that should give all of us great encouragement. Notice first the Spirit's powerful and dwelling presence. That's found in verse 44. Notice it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. We see in this verse, the Holy Spirit arrives in a powerful way. Again, the Holy Spirit is one of the three members of the Trinity. He is a person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is holy. That is, He's set apart. He's different from the world. He's excluded from any sin. He is perfect and righteous. He is one of the three persons of the Trinity. And he arrives on the scene. Was he already there? God's omnipresent. Absolutely, he was already there. He's present everywhere. But what does this mean? He fell upon them. The reality is, is that his, he manifested himself in a great way. He showed himself off in a great way. By arriving on the scene and working in the hearts of the unbelievers and causing them to see the error of their way and causing them to turn to Christ and embrace Him. The Spirit's arrival came even before the sermon was over. Boy, this is a, a, a pastor's dream. You're preaching along and talking about Christ and talking about how good He is and talking about the glory and all of a sudden, boom! Spirit arrives and people recognize their sin and say, I need Christ. I need Him. I pray right now that the Spirit is working on you, every one of you. I pray He's causing you to see that you need Christ. You need Jesus all the time. The Spirit's arrival came even before the sermon. That's good news, isn't it? Was over. The Spirit's arrival came upon the listening crowd, notice. He came upon those listening to the message. Again, this is so important. They had already, in a sense, they were already listening, prepped by the grace of God. Are you listening? <laughs> I would challenge you. Are you listening? All too often, how many times have I seen this and been blindsided in the last couple of weeks of people that have heard and heard and heard messages, but no change? <laughs> Listen, I... I don't get up here and preach the gospel just so that you can know facts. I want to see the glory of the gospel impact lives. That's why we do what we do, right? We do this because we want people to know and enjoy and love Christ. Do you love Him? Is He your priority? Are you listening? I pray the Spirit comes upon you. I pray He's heavy on you. And if you're in unrepentant sin, that you won't be able to get out of this place without 
begging God for forgiveness. He's your hope. He's my hope. Constantly, continuously. Am I something special? No, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Needing Christ today just as much as I needed him yesterday. I need him all the time and you do too. And the Spirit's arrival is described metaphorically here. We see as falling upon the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 11 verse 15, Peter describing this, we'll see it next week as, I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us in the beginning, at the beginning. And again, he's talking back at Pentecost. He's referring to that. When the Spirit arrives on the scene, it's as if the lights come on. They understand the glory of the gospel. The Spirit turns our hearts and has us embrace Christ and understand how good He is and how worthy He is of our worship. The Spirit's arrival is also associated with the metaphorical concept of being poured out. In chapter 10, verse 45, it says there, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Again, many of us, when we hear these little phrases falling upon and and poured out, filled up, we think things like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the charismatic sermon. This guy's going to break out into speaking in tongues. (laughs) No, I'm not. I believe that gift has ceased. But by God's grace, I am being led by the Spirit right now. And I'm preaching exactly what he wants me to say. And every part that doesn't line up with Scripture, chuck it. And everything that lines up with Scripture, that's from him. I believe the Spirit works powerfully today. I know this from my own personal testimony of who he's taken me from being to who I am today. The Spirit is alive and active and He's working in this wretched sinner to make me look like His Son. And I am so thankful for that powerful Spirit. His indwelling presence has effect, doesn't it? It changes lives. Listen, beloved, if my life was different. My life was about money and possessions and all the wrong things in this world. But the Spirit of God has changed me. I don't give credit to myself. I didn't clean myself up. I am a wretched, miserable sinner apart from God's grace. But the Spirit of God can change this wicked man and turn him into a lover of God. And there is no greater joy in my heart than the joy of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is He your joy? That's what the Spirit does. He powerfully works in people to cause them to see how much Christ is valuable. It's more valuable than anything. Listen to me, folks. Look over at Romans chapter 5. The Spirit does things. The Spirit works. As Romans 5, 5 states, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You say, oh, I have a hard time loving people. (laughs) I have a hard time loving God. Well, maybe it's because the Spirit's not in your heart. Maybe it's the reason why you have a hard time sacrificing loving God is because the Spirit of God is not in there. By the way, I, I didn't love God and I didn't love people until the Spirit began to work in my heart. And you don't either, believer. It is by God's grace that He pours out the love of God into us through the Spirit. And as we know from Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not because I deserve to get the Spirit. It's not deserve to get God's righteousness. But it was according to His mercy by the watching and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's talking about when the Spirit changes our hearts and gives us new hearts, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. All of this is contingent upon the gospel. All of this is contingent upon what Christ did. When Christ died and rose from the dead, he provided life. And that life is realized through the Spirit of God who lives within us. This is glorious truth, folks. The Spirit's arrival upon this group of people in Acts chapter 10 is also associated with being baptized by the Spirit, by Peter. If you look over at Acts eleven sixteen, Peter describes it. We'll see it again next week. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter's associating the falling on of the Holy Spirit with being baptized with the Spirit. And by the way, listen to me closely, there's not two baptisms of the Holy Spirit. There's one. When you become a believer, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes upon you one time. And at that time, you begin to live different. You're indwelt by God. Yet also the arrival of the Spirit is associated with the moment of their salvation, as Peter talks about in 11.14. The Spirit's presence, listen closely, is not an optional gift for the believer as Paul makes very clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Listen to Paul. He says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The reality is this. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not born again. You're not God's child. The Spirit is in every believer. And if the Spirit is in us, guess what? There's a change. Because He's powerful. The Creator of the universe, the Holy God, literally indwells His people. And it makes a difference, right? And if not, in your life, you find yourself right now, you're saying, man, I'm just dead in sin. I'm I'm not able to do anything for God's glory. The answer is, you need the Spirit, You need the gospel. You need Christ. You need to cry out to Him. He will forgive you of your sins. You will find joy in Him. Trust in Him. Turn to Him today. And the Spirit will take His abode in you 
He will dwell in you. Knowing the Spirit indwells each of us who have truly turned from our sin and embraced Jesus as our Savior should have a major impact on our sanctification. It should motivate us. Do you understand, beloved, that the Spirit of God is with you all the time? It should motivate us, right? We know He is present, so we are moved to live in a certain way. We should be grieved by our sin, right? We shouldn't want to sin, right? If we know that the Spirit of God is indwelling our souls, do we want to go headlong into sin and say, who cares? No big deal. No. If we understand that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, there's a natural motivation to want to kill sin. Correct? There should be a desire to honor the Holy Spirit. To proclaim His name, to exalt Christ. That should be who we are. We should understand that God is with us always. But also objectively. That is, in fact, the Spirit has an impact on the believer. Not just motivationally, but there are actual factual truths Things that happen within the life of a believer who is indwelt by God. There's something that happens. Here's what happens. Romans 8, 13. By the Spirit, we are putting to death the deeds of the body. That's what believers do. We are sin slayers. Why? Because we're indwelt by the Spirit. We do this. This is what we do. This is who we are. Are you doing that? If you're not killing sin in your life, then you're not indwelt by the Spirit. There's hope for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He came to die to pay for sin. Turn to Him. If you're in bondage to sin, if you walk in this bondage of sin and you're you're covering so nobody sees... You should have an overwhelming conviction from the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit wants to kill sin in your life. You understand? Believers, we have Him in us. Dwelling in us. And He produces fruit. What's the fruit? Love. Joy. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Listen, the Spirit literally produces real fruit. Do you understand? This isn't the kind of fruit that you put up on on the table that's plastic and lasts all year round and you pull it out once a year. This is the real stuff. Sacrificial living, putting others above yourself, delighting in Christ, being satisfied with Him no matter what your circumstances. Real fruit, a peace and patience and kindness that distinguishes us from the world, right? Oh, oh, people are wanting the charismatic 
wanting to speak in tongues. I just want the fruit of the Spirit to show up. That's what we need. People that really care about one another. That would lay down their lives for each other. I think we need a revival. What do you think? I think we're so self-focused, sinfully driven, selfish, prideful people. That's what we are. But a spirit-indwelt person is broken, humbled, needy, dependent. Is that us? Oh, spirit, come on this place now. We need you. We need him now, don't we? Produce the fruit, God. Please produce the fruit in us. Start with me, Lord. Start with this wretched sinner, me. Is that your prayer? Break me. Crush me. Do whatever it takes to make me love you and love others. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit now. Notice the Spirit is a worship leader in the least likely of people. Next, we see the surprise over the sinners coming to repentance. In verses 45 and 46, we see all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Notice the Spirit's indwelling presence in the Gentiles causes shock and awe. To the six Jewish believers that were eyewitnesses of this new work of the Spirit. They were shocked. They were surprised. They were in awe. They were amazed. Why? Because this is contrary. This is, this doesn't make sense. I thought, I thought, they thought, this is what they would have said. They thought, this is for the Jews. This isn't for the world. The Messiah is for the Jews. His people. And yet they look out and they see the nations embracing the Messiah. They're like, what? This is crazy. This makes no sense. And the Spirit is going into them too? Wait a second. The Spirit, don't y'all know, the presence of God was behind the Holy of Holies. The inner place, no one could go there. Only one time a year could the high priest go into that place. And then outside of that, the Jews could go. And then outside of that, the Jewish men rather, and then the Jewish women, and then outside of that area, 
the Gentiles could maybe slide in occasionally just to get the outside look at the building. But here we've got the presence of God literally indwelling pagans, Gentiles. Can you believe this? This is shocking to them. Again, pagans by the time of Jesus were considered mostly unsavable outside of God's merciful hand. So when Gentiles begin to show the fruit of being given the Spirit, these believers are just shocked. Every person who converted and was indwelt by the Spirit is astonishing. And again, that wicked, sinful people like us can have God's holy presence take up residence in us is truly amazing. You know, one of the biggest problems I think we have is that we have lost, in these 2,000 years, we've lost the shock over the reality of what happens when somebody's saved. We've lost that surprise factor. What do I mean by that? We we think, oh yeah, another person got saved. Yeah, that's good. Good job. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Let's go watch the football game. Come on, let's go play some golf. Oh, let's let's eat a little bit. Let's have some. This is cool. Wow, we got another one. Welcome to the family. This is good. We should throw ourselves on the ground and go, you're kidding me. Another one? God is indwelling another sinner that's repented? Unbelievable. Shocking, isn't it? That God would save any of us in this room and take up his inhabitants in any of our hearts is absolutely mind-blowing mercy. It is beyond amazing grace. That anybody in this room knows God is just shocking, astonishing, surprising. Our problem is is that we think we're relatively good people. So to be saved is not that big a deal. We've forgotten just how wicked and wretched we really are. Do you understand that if God even takes time to talk to you, you should be going, wow. But we're like that child that takes their father for granted. That thinks, yeah, Dad, you should love me. Of course you should get me a Christmas present. Of course I should be treated well. I mean, after all, I'm your child. Come on. Step up. Pops.
Beloved, we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten who God is. We've begun to think that we deserve his indwelling presence. And in light of that, the forgotten God is turning us over to our sinful ways. Why is America like America is? Because America thinks that America deserves God. We have a problem in our heart, don't we? We have a problem in the sanctuary, too. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Just kidding. It's a beautiful child. Look at that. All you got to do is get a little bit of milk, and it's all set. You're a blessed woman. Beautiful baby. Our God is in the heavens and he gives many, many great gifts, doesn't he? The greatest of gifts is his Holy Spirit. That's the greatest of gifts, isn't it? But what was the evidence that clued the Jewish believers on that these Gentiles were now under the control of the Spirit? Notice in verse 46, For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Again, these tongues were known languages being spoken by people who did, had not been trained in those languages, just like at Pentecost, as Peter says later. Again, these were miraculous gifts or signs meant to confirm the power and influence of the gospel in the people that were least likely to the Jewish congregation. One commentator stated this, Only an undeniable demonstration of divine power could overrule all objections. And God provided precisely that in Cornelius' household. The Jews could not and would not have accepted the reality of the new covenant coming to the Gentiles without a miraculous demonstration of the Spirit's work. That's why they spoke in tongues. It had to happen because they could not wrap their minds around the idea of Gentiles getting the Spirit too. And so he confirms it with these miracles. But notice also a second characteristic of the Gentiles' conversion was their worship. Look at it, folks. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Well, the charismatics always move on to the, or want the first one. But I would argue that the second one is even more important. It is the worship that comes forth from a true, genuine convert. And by the way, the first one might not be normative today, but guess what? The second one is. Did you hear me? All genuine believers do what? They worship God. They exalt God. There is a characteristic of everybody that's indwelt by the Spirit. And it's a, a fact. It happens. What is it? Look at it. They were exalting God. I would argue that while the first evidence of the Spirit's presence, speaking in tongues, isn't around today... 
The second one is a reality, right? It's who we are. Exalting God is a life of the born-again believer. If we have the Spirit of God in us, we exalt Christ as we're supposed to. For two reasons. First, we have been changed. Our desires have been transformed by the Spirit. We want to exalt God. It's what our life is about. It's what we do. This is who we are. We've been changed. We exalt Christ. That's what we're, our life is. And second, we have the Spirit's indwelling presence. The Spirit of God seeks the Father and the Son's glory always. Do you understand the three members of the Trinity are always about glorifying each other? They are. And the Spirit who indwells His believers causes the believers to do what? To glorify the other members of the Trinity. That's what He's all about. If you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, what do you think the Spirit of God's going to talk about and encourage us to do, rather? Exalt Christ. Exalt the Father. All indwelt believers have a member of the Trinity within them, motivating them to exalt God. As Romans 8 makes very clear, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Oh, folks, this is good, isn't it? Listen, what does the Spirit cry out with our spirit? By which we cry out, Abba, Father. We say, Father, Heavenly Father. We acknowledge that He's our Father. That is what? Worship. That's acknowledging Him. That's exalting Him. He is the one we live for. Acknowledging the worth of our Heavenly Father is natural for the redeemed believer. It's what we do because we are changed and because the Spirit indwells us. We worship as these new converts did in Acts 10. Verse 45. All the, uncirc- all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out in the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Listen. Who are you about? Who's the hero in your life? Who's the one you talk about? Who do we exalt? If we're indwelt by the Spirit, who is it going to be? It's going to be Christ. It's going to be God all the time, right? Otherwise, there's a heart problem and the Spirit's not indwelling us. If you are stuck in sin, there there should be some warning lights going off in your mind right now. How can I be doing this if I'm indwelt by God? Have any of you believers ever asked that question to yourself? How can I be doing this if I'm indwelt by the living God? If so, your answer should be, I shouldn't be doing this. May God have mercy on my soul. And may you, Spirit, work in my heart to make me hate this and to turn from this. 1 Corinthians 6 
is so clear, crystal clear about the indwelling presence of the Spirit and what it has on us. 6, 19, and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, which and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I know this is harsh. I know I'm being a little hard today. But it is the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Come on, people. Right? Paul says this. Don't you understand that you're indwelt by God? Oh, beloved, we have the Spirit living in us. We must recognize the purpose of His indwelling presence is what? Why did, why was, why are we the Holy Temple? What are temples for? Places of worship. Do you understand that you're a place of worship? That your life is about worshiping the king. All that you do is for him. So we have seen the Spirit's presence brings this worship. Are you worshiping him? And third, we see the summons for our believer's baptism. This is one of the worship services. This is what we do. Why do we get baptized? Well, we do it to acknowledge who he is. And Peter says to him, in effect, look, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The rhetorical question has the implied answer, obviously no one can stop them from being baptized. Let's baptize them now. Why? Because it's obvious the Spirit's in them. They're exalting God. The fruit is on display. And so he gives the command in verse 48 to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, baptism baptism comes as a result of the Spirit's baptism. When he comes in, we then get baptized. Baptism comes as a sign of what's already happened to us as regenerate believers. Getting baptized as a baby is not what the Bible shows at all. Not even close. Not even close. It's a result of being baptized. That's what it it says it. And it's associated with baptism... And the Spirit's baptism by Peter in verse 11, in chapter 11. It's obvious. It's not even close. With all due respect to R.C. Sproul, I love him. Good guy, but he's wrong on this one. Baptism does not save us, but it is also not an option for the believer. Every single true convert to Christ must be baptized. They must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This means they must be baptized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is, they must identify themselves with the one who died in their place and rose from the dead. When we're baptized, we're saying, I'm with him. He's my Lord. He's my King. I'm with him. 
I am not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. And it's an opportunity to say, I'm now indwelt by God and I want to live for Him. Baptism is somewhat like a wedding. It's a public proclamation that I am now Christ's bride. If a person gets baptized, they identify themselves with Christ. This is why it matters so much. When we are baptized, we say, I am a new creature in Christ. I am alive in Christ. I am not my own anymore. I have the Spirit of God living in him, in me. And I am a true worshiper of God. One reason we are a little bit more cautious at our church to not baptize people too quickly is because of the fruit of the Spirit does not include speaking in tongues today. It does include the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and it does include the fruit of the Spirit, but unfortunately, people are good at being fakes today. People can say truth, but they're not necessarily regenerate. People can even say words exalting God, but still be dead in sin. So baptism at our church includes a well-thought-out testimony and counsel from a discipler. Beloved, if you have not been baptized and you are a true follower of Christ, you need to pursue baptism. You need to ask for your disciples' help. Hopefully you're being discipled. And if not, I have some for you. Come to me afterwards. You need to be baptized. The fact of the matter is, is that when we're baptized, we say, I'm with Christ. I will obey him. Just like at a wedding ceremony where we say, I'm with that person. I will identify with them. Finally, we see the striving for continued fellowship and discipleship. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is the heart of every true believer, folks. Our phrase is this, we want more. (laughs) I want more. How about you? I want more of Christ, more of God's people, more time with him. I want more. How about you? I want to, you know, personally, I wish church service was every day. My wife went, what? (laughs) You'd be teaching it every time. No. I, I just love getting together with you guys. I just love spending time with you, talking to you about Jesus. I love it when you ask me questions that I don't know and I have to go look up in the Bible. (laughs) There is no greater fellowship than the fellowship that we have amongst us. It's sweet, isn't it? It's sweet because it's unhypocritical. It doesn't judge one another. It doesn't gossip about one another. It sees each other in our own pains and stuff, and we say, you know what, I just need more of Christ. I just want to be around you. I want to confess my sins to you because I know that you guys aren't going to slap me. I know you're going to pray for me. You don't care. It's not a, I'm trying to get anybody's approval in this group. You don't have to worry about that, do you? And it doesn't matter what nationality or ethnic group or anything like that. It doesn't matter because we still love the same Jesus. 
It's good, isn't it? And so, what do they say to this Jew that just a couple of days previous would have never even stepped foot in their house? Will you hang out with us? Will you stay with us longer? Oh, beloved. The Spirit comes on people and it changes lives. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, you are kind and good to us that you have given us the Spirit. Lord, help us now not to grieve the Spirit. May we honor the Spirit. May we exalt you as you deserve. God, I do pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you yet and haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, I pray that your Spirit right now is convicting them and causing them to see that their hope is not found in themselves, but their hope is found in you, Lord. Oh, Father, please grant grace to these people. Please grant repentance to them. For all of us who are believers, we know, we know that we are, to a degree, all of us fight hypocrisy. We know that we don't always demonstrate this love of the Spirit in our hearts. We know that we are still prone to wander and prone to stray. Oh, Father, we know none of us thinks that we are, have arrived by any stretch of the imagination. We understand that we are sin killers. We are constantly mortifying that sinful desires in our hearts that are constantly arising. Oh, God, grant us grace. May your Spirit help us to mortify these things. And may you be exalted in our lives. May you be shown to be worthy as you are. We commit this day to you, and we ask that you be honored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.